I feel like I married your father. That's a phrase that is commonly uttered by my wife in my home and while we're out and while we're in places. I feel like I married your father. Uh, for many of us, that's like a bad thing. For some of us, it's a good thing. I happen to like my dad. I like a lot of what he brings to the table. So it's good. Um, I find that as I get older, as I get more comfortable with just who I am, uh, my wife and I have been married for 13, almost 13 years now, but we dated for like 100 before that. So like we're just comfortable with each other. So I find that as I get older, as we get older, uh, I just become more like my dad. I just, I kind of revert to what that is. Um, it's good. However, it doesn't get uttered around good things. It, get, it gets uttered around <laughs> questionable things. Um, here's where it gets uttered the most, though. When we're in quiet assemblies like this, right? We're sitting somewhere. We're supposed to be quiet. We're in a group of people supposed to be quiet. In a movie, supposed to be quiet. And I don't, well, my dad doesn't quite know what it means to whisper. He, his whisper is something like what my voice normally is, like projecting to the back of the room. He doesn't quite know what it is to whisper. Uh, and I get the same trait from him, especially when we're in assemblies like this. And our, our middle son, Eli, I'm a middle child, our middle son, Eli, has the same exact problem. And the issue for all three of us is that when we're told to shh, be quiet, you're too loud, we don't understand how we're, how, like, how we're not whispering, and we become incredulous about, like, I, I am quiet. Um, the, most, the most famous incident of this was at a restaurant once. We were at a restaurant, we were going out to dinner, and this older couple, um, a man and a woman, walked in. They were middle-aged, and uh, my family knew the woman. She was um, recently divorced, and she walks in with this short, stocky man. Um, not me, a different short, stocky man. And, and my mom goes to my dad, in a whisper, because my mom knows how to whisper, uh, goes to my dad, Jer, his, his name's Jerry, uh, look, that must be Linda's new boyfriend. And my dad, you know, a normal response is like, oh, that's great. My dad looks him up and down, and he goes, that little guy? <laughs> she could do better than him. <laughs> Loud enough for the entire restaurant to hear. <laughs> and we are like, ah! Dad, shh, you have to stop. And he's like, what, what? Like, Dad, you have to stop. You have to whisper. And he's like, I am whispering. I'm like, no, everyone can hear you. You shouldn't say that at all, but you definitely shouldn't say that loud enough so that everyone can hear you. I'm like my dad. I'm like that. I stand like him. I look like him. Um, I think like him. I talk like him. We were actually here for the Good Friday service a few weeks ago. And if you remember that, it was a nice, quiet, contemplative, engaging evening. And I'm sitting over here in the corner behind Amanda. Um, and I found myself, for one thing, I can't whisper. And so I'm saying things to her throughout the service. And she keeps turning around and saying, shh, you have to whisper. Stop. Um, I also found myself, after one of the songs ended, I kept humming it which is something that our dads do, right? They hum songs. And I'm not even joking. She turned around and said to me, I feel like I married your father. <laughs> There's a certain point in all of our lives, I think, where we stop trying to be something we're not, 
We stop trying to put on the mask or get dressed in clothes that we're not comfortable in. We take the facade off and we just, we just be ourselves. You just, you do who you are. A certain point in your life, you stop with the charade and you just do who you are. And that's the title of the series that's going to take us through the spring. Um, we're going to explore not how we can become more like our dads. We're going to explore who God has made us to be, who God has made you to be. Not so that you could pretend, stop pretending or stop being like someone else, but so that you can actually know who you are and live, live the life that God has made for us to live. This is where the series will take us this spring. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, this is a, um, this is a series, this is a message that, that, that ought to speak to you. If you are a follower of Jesus, let this be a chance to be reminded of who God has made you and what God has called you to. And um, if you're someone who, who experienced over the last few months in our Rooted series, if you're someone who experienced a, a different kind of faith, or your faith came to life in a way it hadn't before, let this be a chance to build off that and to say, this is who I am now, and this is where God calls me to be. If you're someone who's here and you're not someone who is a follower of Jesus or a believer of Jesus, um, like Paul said, we are super glad that you are here. Let this be a chance for you to hear what God has called you to and has made you for, whether you're able to accept that or connect with that or believe that or not right now. It is what God has made you for. And um, I want to give you the entire series right now in a nutshell. I want it to be simple because I need simple to be able to remember things. I think we all need simple. Um, and here's the, entire, here's the entire series in a nutshell. God made you, so live like it. God made you. So live like it. God made you his children. So live like a child of God. God made you his missionaries. God made you his servants. God made you his family. So live like it. These are the four kind of core identities that we've picked out of the New Testament. And we're going to teach to these over the next few weeks because we want you to see yourself as this so that you know um, how to live. What are the reasons for this? What are the foundation? What are the implications that it's true that God made you like this? This morning, though, we're not going to focus on any of those four. We'll put those aside for next week. Um, we're just going to focus on those first three words this morning. God made you. Do you know that, though? Do you, do you believe that? How much does that matter for who you are? How much does that matter for how much you think of yourself? How much does that matter when you walk uh, into work on Monday morning? How much does that matter when you live the life? How much does that matter when you struggle and when you suffer through things you wish you, you weren't going through? How much does that matter when you're serving God and doing things that you, that you are made for? God made you. Do you believe that? Can you believe that? We want to say when this question is asked of us, who are you? We want to know the answer. It's a hard question to answer. The world throws at us all kinds of ways to answer this question, who are you? But when this question is posed to us, it could, posed to us, it could be a tough one. We want to say, you know, I'm a teacher. I'm an engineer. I'm a husband. I'm a wife. We want to say I'm a Christian. But what happens when the teaching job that you had put so much of your identity in, when that goes away? Or what happens when you retire 
and you're not the engineer that you once were. What happens when your husband walks out on you and you're not the wife that you want to be? What happens when your faith becomes something that's so difficult for you or that's so challenged for you or hard for you that you have a hard time uttering the words, yes, I'm a Christian? Who are you when you can't answer the question in any of those ways? What happens when you can't say that any longer? Then who are you? Have you ever been with someone, spent time with someone who really struggles or is uncomfortable with who they are? You know there's like an unease. There's a lack of confidence. There's a lack of um, satisfaction that goes on there. When I, was in, when I was in college, I had a roommate my freshman year of college. His name was Dave, Magic Dave. Um, <laughs> Magic Dave was a guy who, um, he grew up in a kind of a tougher world than I grew up in, like poorer than me, um, you know, grew up in a place, you know, there just wasn't a great place to grow up. Uh, his parents didn't do the things parents were supposed to do. So Magic Dave had to be tough. Like he had to look tough, he had to act tough, he had to dress tough, he had to be tough. And when he was with his friends, he was this tough guy. He talked, to, you know, he talked this way. But he, when he came back into the dorm room, um, he didn't have to be tough for me, because as tough as I am, they didn't, it evidently didn't project right. Uh, he wasn't tough in front of me. And it, it got really funny when um, my wife, my then girlfriend, would come to visit me at college, because um, he just like, liked her. And like, he would come back into the dorm, and he would just totally change. He wouldn't be this tough, street kind of smart guy anymore. He would be this like, guy who um, was like, so kind and so generous and funny and engaging, um, and he liked magic tricks. <laughs> he would go to the store and buy magic tricks, and he would come back to the dorm room. I'm positive he didn't do this with his like boys. Like, he would come back to the dorm room and he would be like, "Hey, you want to see a magic trick?" And he kind of felt like a little kid. And he would show us his magic tricks, and Amanda is much a much better person than I am. She would entertain it and, and laugh and be amazed by it. I would be like, oh, Magic Dave. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he was a different person when he was around us than he was out there. And it kind of came to a head one day. Um, he came back to the dorm after being with his friends. He came back to the dorm. He threw his stuff down. I, I think something happened, but he threw his stuff down. And he started talking to me as if I was one of his friends out there. Yeah, and he kind of he caught himself, and he realized, like, oh, that's not who I am here. And he sat at his desk, and he put his head down as if he was working on something, and I knew he wasn't. He was hanging his head in shame, because he realized, like, these two different identities, these two different plates that I'm spinning, it just, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs> and if you've, um, if you've been around people who you could tell they're trying to hold up a bunch of different plates. They're trying to spin a bunch of, you know it doesn't work. It's tiring. Eventually the plates will fall. It will all come crashing down because it's just, it's just not who you are. It's easier. It's better. It's more natural. It's more life-giving and freeing to just be who you are. And so the question is, the question that we'll kind of ask this morning is, well, who are you? Who are you? And who says so? Who says who you are? And who gets to say so? And why do they get to say who you are? Or why does it get to say who you are? 
Are you what your parents' DNA coming together says you are? Are you uh, this combination of the way your parents have raised you and your family and your siblings and your friends and the teachers you had in your life and the influences? Is that, is that who you are? Is who you are kind of this product of all of the things that happened to you, those defining moments? We talked about that on Easter. Is it fate that makes you who you are? And what about you? How much do you play in who you are? Is it your decisions, your words, your actions that make you who you are? How much is it what you make of yourself? How much of who you are is a product of your own two hands? How much of who you are is what your job says about you, or your bank account, or your Instagram account, or your health record, or your criminal record? How much does that make you who you are? What about your successes? What about your failures? What about your sins? What about the things that you do that you wish you could take back? How permanent do those things make you who you are? And the things that you do that you want to see make you who you are, how lasting are they? Do you have to keep renewing that? How do you find out who you are? And what finally, foundationally, and fully answers this question? Well, God made you. So why don't you ask God who you are? And that's, that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to turn to uh, his word to us in the New Testament in a letter, in a letter written by a guy named Paul. Paul was a first century Christian, uh, and before he met Jesus, before Jesus met him, Paul was someone who knew who he was. Paul was a guy, he was raised Jewish, he was trained to be the very, very best. He had the best teachers, the best education track. Um, he grew up in just the right way to be who he was. And when he grew up and started his work, uh, he did who he was. And there was no doubt about that. He was notorious for knowing who he was and for making people suffer because of who he was. And then Jesus met him. And Jesus, like the light of Jesus knocked him on his butt and Paul changed that day. And Jesus said to Paul, 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 you think that you're this. Your whole life has been shaped around being this. You think this is who you are? Not any longer. I get to say who you are. I make you who you are. And this is who you are. You are my servant, and you are going to do great things for me. This is who you are. And that day, Paul's life changed. Who he was completely changed. And he wrote letters. He wrote uh, one letter to a church in a city called Ephesus. And he wrote to them to remind them about who they are now because of what Jesus has done. He writes them to remind them uh, of who they are now. For those of us, for those of you whose lives, whose faith, whose heart, whose mind was transformed in some way over the last few months, which that's what we celebrated last week, let this be a reminder for you of who you actually are. And so Paul writes for us in Ephesians 2. This is what he writes. He says, For we are what God, what he has made us, what God has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. God made you, so live like it. My paraphrase is that. It's just a paraphrase of it. God made you, so live like it. Before we get into the specifics of how this answers the who are you question, though, we have to look at what that first word up there really kind of means, what that symbolizes and tells us, that word for. Paul is connecting this, this big idea, you are what God has made you. He's connecting that with all that he says before it. 
Um, he's kind of building an argument. He's setting up a contrast that we need to see to see just what this actually means. And so we're going to move up to the beginning of chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 1 and keep going through that. And this is what Paul writes. He wrote, You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that's at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. Lots of words. It's a little confusing, but the first two words, this is the kind of thing that we skip over all the time. The first two words are enormously important. They hold an enormous amount of hope for each and every one of us. The words, you were. The words, you were, mean that what you are doesn't always have to be. It means that the things that you don't think can change about you or about your circumstances or about life isn't necessarily the case that things can't change. For those of you who feel stuck, you are stuck can become you were stuck. You are this can become you were this. And we know that because what they were stuck in, what they were is the worst thing to possibly be, and that's dead. If Jesus can change someone from being a you are dead to a you were dead, that ought to give hope to each and every one of us who are stuck where we are. Paul is not talking about literal death here. He's talking about um, spiritual death. He's talking about that spiritual death, which is actually more threatening and more dangerous for us than physical death. That spiritual death is that sort of death that makes us feel like life is just not worth living, like life has no hope, like life has no potential, like life is senseless. It's like the life that you're living that has no actual life in it. If you've lived that death, you know exactly what Paul is talking about, what Paul is getting at here. But do you know that that death does not and cannot have the last word over you? Because you are dead can become you were dead. Just like it did for these Ephesians. No matter how dead, no matter how hopeless, no matter how stuck you think you are. So if you hear nothing else, hang some hope on that this morning. And you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which, in, in which you once lived. And trespasses and sins, these are kind of the same way, or two different ways of saying the same things. Trespasses is the idea of, like, there's a line in the sand. Across that line, you shouldn't step, right? Um, sins is what it means to miss the mark of what God means for you, what God calls for you. This is the stuff that God just doesn't want for you because it's bad for you, it's bad for the world around, and so God condemns it. This is the stuff, um, the pain that you've caused others, whether you know it or not, the pain you've caused yourself, the pain you've caused God, the way you've turned your back on God, rebelled against God. You've gone your own way over against where God wants you to go. And these trespasses and sins, we have a hard time connecting with this idea because um, in our society, we are told all the time, just do whatever you feel like. But these trespasses and sins, they have enormous, enormous power over us. They have the power to destroy us. They have the power to kill us. I mean, their power over us is the power of death. And on our own, apart, apart from God, apart from God, that's where we stand. Apart from God, from what Jesus has done, from all of that, apart from God, uh, 
Our trespasses and sins, the things that we've done, the work of our own two hands, that is actually what makes us who we are. We were dead. Of our own accord, we are dead. That's what we make of ourselves. Is this what happens when you follow Jesus? No, this is what happens when you follow the course of this world. And the course of this world, when Paul says that, he means like the way the world works. He means when you get who you are, when you get your identity from what the world makes of you, or from what the world expects of you, or from, the, or from what the world tries to make you into, um, that's what happens. And what does the world try to say we are? The world tries to say that we're just a product of what we do with our job, or how much money we make. Who we are um, is the success that we have. Commercials, advertising companies go through great pains to say, you are who you are because you chose uh, the Apple product rather than the Android product. Or you drink Sprite rather than Sierra Mist. I don't know who does that. <laughs> the world tries to tell us that uh, you are who you are when you're doing exactly what you want. And then you're going to be happy. And happiness is some weird barometer of actually being who you are. Like, this is what makes you who you are. That's what the world, like, when we follow the course of the world, that's where it leads us. And then Paul goes a little weird on us. He goes, uh, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that's at work in us. And that's confusing. It's a little bit much to talk about now. Um, but what he's talking about is, like, the spirit of the age, the way things work, that, like, the dark forces out there, evil, Satan, <clears throat> actually uses those things to cause oppression, to cause pain, to cause darkness where there was no darkness before. Um, the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit of the eight, it, it, it twists things to make it so that our lives are more oppressed than they would be without it. And without God, that's where we are. We are made by these things by our sins, our trespasses, the work of our hands, by the way of the world, by the way of this kind of evil spirit. And so when we think about ourselves, when we look at ourselves, there is this push, there is this pull inside of us. Am I who God says I am, or am I what all of those other things say I am? Who am I? All of us, Paul says, all of us are in the same boat there. And then Paul drops on us the two most inspiring words that he pens. And the words are, but God. Anytime Paul says, but God, buckle up and pay attention to what he's going to say, because it's absolutely going to be radiant. And what he says here is just a life change, a game changer. He says, but God, who is rich in mercy. And in case you didn't know who God is, God is rich in mercy. God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses. And just real quick, let that truth sink into you. God loves us. God loves you, even when you were dead through your trespasses and sins. Even when you were in the midst of the things that you wish weren't the things that were true about you. The things that you wish you could take back. The things that you would, you would do differently. The things that you have made of yourself even in the midst of those things, it's exactly at that moment that God loves you. Loves you enough 
to send his son into this world to die for you, to give himself for you, to take your place in death, to die on your behalf, so that he can make us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, that means forever, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's something that's worth hearing. The end of this, the goal of all of this, is that forever God might lavish and pour upon you the endless riches of his grace and kindness. That's not something we hear enough, but it's true. Paul continues, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that, so that no one may boast. And this is what really sets us up uh, for the next verse, verse 10, is, which is what we're focusing on. Uh, the things, the things that you thought make you who you are, the works of your own two hands, all of those things, those things do not save you. They don't make you. They don't make you who you are. It's by grace you have been saved, not your own doing, not the result of your works, not the result of your own two hands, ever, ever, ever. It is the gift of God. Grace is one of those words that gets thrown around. It's a woman's name. Um, it gets used all the time. It's amazing, but we don't know what it means. Paul defines it for us right here. Grace, it's a gift from God. It's a gift of which you have absolutely no hand in. You have absolutely no part in except to receive it with an open hand. That's what grace is. Grace is the opposite of making yourself who you are. Grace is the opposite of having to earn who you are or having to perform to show people who you are or having to prove who you are. Grace is the opposite of being hopeless in your deadness, thinking that your deadness is too big for you. Grace is the opposite of anything, anyone, any factor, any circumstance, any moment making you who you are. Grace is what God has done for us, without us, but what he freely gives to us so that we can live. You were dead, but God, grace, life. That's where this goes. For, Paul says, for, you want to know who you are? This is who you are. For you are what God has made you. We are what he has made you, which immediately means that you were not ever anything else other than what he has made you. We are what God has made you. It means that the thing that you're afraid makes you who you are, you're not. It means the thing that you've been avoiding trying to make who you are, you're not. It means that the thing that you've positively tried to work yourself to the bone for, to make you who you are, you're not. It means that the DNA that's flowing through your blood and it's in your cells, it's not who you are. It means that the things that you've tried all your life to achieve and that you've achieved, as good as they are, as high as they are, as purposeful and as hopeful and as useful as they are, it's not who you are. It also means the things that are the lowest, the things that you don't want to even think about, the things you can't imagine anymore, those things that just fight to make us who we are, it's not who you are. 
For those of you who have a hard time believing that and living like it, this is what you need to hear. I put it, I put it in this big obnoxious box, the obnox box, um, so you'll notice it. What God has made you means more than what blank has made you. What God has made you means more than what anything else you could fill in that blank has made you. And you can fill in that blank for yourself. Because you know the things that go in there. The things that are on your heart that are wrestling for your mind, you know those things. Your trespasses and sins, your hopelessness, your brokenness, your criminal record, your internet browsing history, your diagnosis, your Instagram account, your deepest darkness, none of those are what God has made you. Do you believe that? Can you believe that? We have a hard time believing that because we, I don't know if it's because of we're Americans or I don't know what it is, but we have a hard time believing that because we want to be people who work for what we have. We want to be people who can uh, perform, put on a data sheet and say, hey, look at me. I am what I've made of myself. We want to be people who, when we mess up, we're the ones who pay for our sins. We're the ones who pay for ourselves. Um, we have a hard time believing this because we want to be the work of our own two hands. But God is too gracious with us to allow that to be the case. And you know how we know that? Because where are we made? Where are we made? This is the most... Fa we are created in Christ Jesus. We are created nowhere else. We are created in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means that Jesus, the man who walked on this earth, who was God in person 2,000 years ago, I mean, when he walked on this earth, he took you. He took your darkness. He took your trespasses and sins. He took your stuff. He took it all on himself and in himself. And when he was nailed to the cross and when he died there and he was buried in that tomb, your stuff was buried there too. Your death was buried there too in a very real way, more real than I can even explain to you. When Jesus Christ died there, you died there too. Your death died there. And days later, on Easter morning, when he was raised from the dead, you, in some mysterious, unthinkable way, were also raised. That's the moment where you, you, who you really are, were created. That's why you are what he has made us. That's where you were created. What that means is that you cannot answer the question, who are you? You cannot understand yourself. You cannot actually know who or what you are apart from Jesus, apart from what God has done in his death and his resurrection. And to, under to understand yourself apart from that is to under understand yourself incorrectly. And there's a good chance that without Jesus at the center of who you think you are, of your identity, of how you understand yourself, there's a good chance you're going to have that statement up there reversed. That what blank has made me is actually more important than what God has made me. And for those of you uh, who have faith in Jesus, or who saw your faith transformed, or who want faith, turn that around. Turn that around in your mind. Switch it around. What would it mean for you to do just that? What would it mean for you to believe that what God has made you actually means more than what blank has made you? 
What would it look like for you to live like that? What would it mean for you to live like that? How could you do it? What would it take for you to start believing that? Uh, take a photo of that or something and put it on your screensaver. Maybe we'll actually make phone screensavers of that this week. Mental note. Hey, Siri, remind me. Make that. Uh, um, write it on your dashboard. Put it on a note. Write it on your mirror when you wake up in the morning and brush your teeth or whatever you do in the morning. Um, what God has made you actually means more than what you've made of yourself. Until we can understand that, until we can believe that, until we can in some way embody that, uh, it's just like we're balancing plates, we're spinning plates. Eventually, it will come crashing back down. And what we're made for, what we're made for is good. It's worth it. What we're made for is good, because what we're made for is good works. And it's worth noting, our good works don't make us who we are. Just like our bad works don't make us who we are, God makes us who we are, and we're made for good works. Don't ever get those two things switched around. But there's a devil in the details here of this passage as it relates to just practical what we do, like how we go home today or what we do Monday morning. Um, when we have this statement reversed, when we think that the blank makes us who we are rather than what God makes us who we are, what happens is that we end up doing who we mistakenly think we are. We end up doing the wrong thing. We end up thinking wrong about ourselves, and it isn't good. The perfect example of this, uh, from the Bible at least, is the story of Adam and Eve. If you've read the Bible with us over the course of this year, you would have read it earlier this week. Um, you would have read in that story that God created Adam and Eve, humanity in the garden, uh, and, and they were perfect. They were made for each other. They had everything that they needed. They were there. God was with them. They were simply to be who they were, to do who they were. That's what God called them to do. What happens is, and you probably have heard this even if you've never read the Bible, the serpent, the snake, whispers into their ear, it says, is that really true? Are you actually what God has made you? Are you actually as good as what God has made you? Because I have something that if you knew, you would be better. You could be more than what God has made you. You could be different. If you eat from that tree over there, you're going to know things. You're going to find out things that you wouldn't have known. And just trust me, you will be better and Eve buys it. Eve buys the lie, gives the fruit to Adam. They both do. And what happens from there? Doubt enters in about who God has made them. And distrust enters in. And discord and destruction and devastation and every other D word, uh, like death, enters in. And the plates all come crashing down for Adam and Eve. And it's not their story. It's our story. Because when you're mistaken about what this is, when you have that backwards, and when you uh, think of yourself as, when you think the work of your own two hands makes you who you are, what do you do? You do who you are. You do endless competition to be better than the person next to you. You do pride. You do massive insecurity. When you think that your sins and your trespasses make you who you are, what do you do? You do what you are. You do guilt. You do shame. You do trying to earn back that forgiveness. When those defining moments, when you think that that's what makes you who you are, or when you think that your DNA is what makes you who you are, or when you think what, what the world says about you makes you who you are, what do you do? You just do that. 
You live shaped by something that shouldn't shape you. You perpetuate the sins, the troubles, the problems of your family. You live a life of brokenness that God has never meant for you to live and calls you not to live. He calls you out of it. The trouble with thinking the wrong things about ourselves is that we live the wrong things about ourselves. We understand the wrong things about ourselves. We become the wrong things. But my friends and my family here in the room, you are not those things. You are what God has made you. So live like it. And that's what, that's what we're going to talk about over the next bunch of weeks in those four different identities, those four core identities, children, missionaries, servants, and families. And we're going to go deeper into each four of those as we go along. Um, as Paul said earlier, now is the time to join a community group. In our community groups over the course of this season, we're going to take these four core identities. And this is something we can't do as a big group. This is why we have to break up into smaller groups. Um, we're going to take these four core identities, and we're going to have specific challenges specific ways to hold each other accountable to practicing living out these identities and to understanding ourselves differently. Um, and we're going to build those throughout the season. So if you're not in a group, now's the time to get into one. Even if you can only come like three out of the seven or eight or ten weeks, just do it. Just get in it. Um, because when you do that together, your faith is going to come to life in a different way. You can't live the identities that we're going to talk about unless you have people around you saying, hey, live that identity. So that's what those groups are going to be all about over the course of this season. And we invite you to be a part of that because that's, I mean, it's, it's really where your faith is going to take new steps and grow. Because um, what we want, what we want is to see a community of people, not only whose faith is rooted and is grounded and growing and big like a tree, we want to see a people whose, whose faith makes it so that they know who they are. So that as they go back home with their husbands and their wives and their children, their children can uh, learn about who God is because of who they are. And when they go into the world, into their workplace, into your school, into the park, wherever you are, people will know who Jesus is because of who you are. Because when you live the life that God has made you to live, people, people see Jesus in you. That's what we want for you uh, as we step out into this world to bring his love to it, his grace to it. So let's pray that God would enable us to do that together as a community. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the words of your servant, Paul. More importantly, though, we thank you for what the words indicate, for what they mean. That you have come to us, given your life to us by grace. You have saved us and you have made us who we are. And we really had nothing to do with it. Lord, help us to receive it with open hands. Help us to believe it. For those of us who are stuck, who can't get out of our own way, who can't find a way to believe that we actually are what you have made us and not what we have made of ourselves, Lord, break through that and help us to believe it. Lord, make it so that uh, we understand ourselves in the way that you want us to understand ourselves so that we can be your people in the world and for one another. We ask, God, that over the course of this series that you would take us um, and form us, reshape us, enlighten us, transform us, challenge us, encourage us, and send us into the world differently. We thank you, God, and we celebrate you that it's not our trespasses and sins, it's not the world, it's not Satan, it's not anything else that makes us who we are, but it's you. And we thank you that though we drop that ball and the plates come crashing down over and over and over again and we let go, 
you will never let us go. We thank you that we can celebrate that and we can sing that now. In Jesus' name we pray.